I'm going to read two passages from Isaiah now. You'll find those inside your leaflet. There's an insert loose leaf there. One passage from Isaiah 65 and the next from Isaiah 66. Starting with Isaiah 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And then from chapter 66, starting at verse 18. And I, because of what they have planned and done... I'm about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord, on houses, in chariots and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them, as the Israelites bring their grain offerings, to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Well, thanks, Ali. Thanks, guys. Let's keep in Isaiah. Uh, if you can keep open your Bibles, if you're reading from your Bible, if you're reading from the leaflet. Um, am I hearing some funny stuff coming from the microphone there? I need to move somewhere. Is that all right? 
Okay, very good. If I need to, I can take it off and I can just speak loudly. So if enough people look objectionably to me, I'll, like, I'll just know to do that, right? Um, why don't we pray? And then we're going to get into God's Word. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank You that You hold out a great future to everyone who's willing to admit our sins and put our faith in Jesus. You hold out a new Jerusalem, a new creation... And yet, Father, we know that so many people in our city and our world don't know Jesus, don't know that hope. Father, we pray that you might move us with a passion for your glory and a passion for those who don't yet know you to go out and tell them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Ali said, today we are finishing our series in the book of Isaiah, A Tale of Two Cities. And you may have wondered over the course of this series why we've called it A Tale of Two Cities. I mean, obviously, it's the title of that famous book by Charles Dickens. But what's that got to do with Isaiah? Well, nothing. Other than that, just as Dickens' book is about two cities and what they stand for, London and Paris, so Isaiah is also about two cities and what they stand for. Isaiah is a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. And it's about how one will be transformed into the other. You see, the book of Isaiah starts as a book about the literal city of Jerusalem. You know, the one in the Middle East. And that city's inhabitants during a very specific time of world history, about 740 to 700 BC. You see it there in that very first verse of Isaiah that we looked at back in October last year, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Very specific, right? And it's a book about how if the world, the heavens and the earth, could see what was going on in that historical city of Jerusalem, well, they wouldn't like what they saw. Isaiah 1 verse 2, hear me you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, as representative of all of God's people, has sinned, they've become corrupt and they're a failure. And Isaiah, the book, starts as a critique of that city and that people. But Isaiah says that one day he will transform Jerusalem and its people. He'll make a new Jerusalem. And as the book goes on, it actually becomes clear that by the end of it, the new Jerusalem won't be a literal historical city at all, but actually a whole new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. You see it there in chapter 65, verses 17 to 18. See, I'll create new creations and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. In other words, Isaiah is a story that moves from the heavens and the earth to the new heavens and the new earth, from Jerusalem to the new Jerusalem. And it's about how God will achieve this transformation. Last week, we saw that this new creation will be great, and we're going to see that again today. And last week, we also saw that you've got to choose to enter it. 
You can't enter this new Jerusalem automatically. No, you've got to actively choose to enter it, accept God's forgiveness that He offers us through the servant, who we now know is Jesus, to gain access to this new creation. And we're going to see that again today too. But one thing we're going to see today that we didn't see last week is that if you can only enter this new Jerusalem by actively choosing to, How on earth are people going to know that they have to make this choice in the first place? Well, it's because we have got to tell them. And that's the challenge that God is going to put to us today as a church. We will tell people that they need to make this choice. So let's get into it. Our first point, if you're following along in your leaflet, which I encourage you to do, the new Jerusalem will be great. In the last two chapters of this book, Isaiah tells us again that God is going to build a a new Jerusalem, a a new creation, and he tells us it's going to be great. Look there at 65 verses 17 to 18 again. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. It's going to be great. Now, what will be so great about it? Well, according to Isaiah, lots of things. Let's go through them. God will delight in the people who live there. There'll be no more sin. Look at verse 19. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And because there'll be no more sin in this city, there'll be no more reason to punish sin with suffering. This new Jerusalem won't just be a sin-free zone, it will be a suffering-free zone. Look there at verse 19 again. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. It gets even better. It won't just be a suffering-free zone, it will be, according to Isaiah, a death-free zone. Verse 20. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Isn't that fantastic? That wonderful image, obviously, overstatement, uh, that uh, a hundred-year-old will be just like a baby. You know, you can imagine church there in the new creation. Okay, we're now going to send all the hundred-year-olds out to creche. Out they go, except it won't be like that, will it? They'll be running by the sounds of it. Now, of course, when you look at the detail of verse 20, it doesn't seem at first glance that he's saying it will be a death-free zone. He's just saying that people will live much longer than they usually do, but still eventually die in this new world. But when you read it in the light of everything that Isaiah says about the new creation, you see the news is actually better than that. That people really won't die at all. Speaking about the new creation in chapter 25, he says this, On this mountain, Jerusalem, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. So it seems like in chapter 65, the language of a hundred-year-olds just being infants is really just his way of saying again that death will no longer be a problem here. It'll be a sin-free zone, it will be a suffering-free zone, and it'll be a death-free zone. There'll be security here. Verse 21. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. There'll be rewarding work in this place. Verse 22 again. 
For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. There will be peaceful relationship with God. Verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. And there will be peace. A peace so deep that it will undo all of the discord sown by the serpent when he tempted Adam and Eve. And which will return him to his rightful place, eating dust on the ground. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God is going to build a new creation and he says it will be great. John quotes these chapters when he describes the new creation in Revelation. Listen to Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It will be great, he says, completely rips off Isaiah 65. Now, do we exactly know what this new creation will look like? Well, no. But we know it will be good. C.S. Lewis tried to sum this up to one of his friends when he wrote him a letter and he said this. What will this new creation will be like? Well... Then the new earth and sky, the same yet not the same as these, will rise in us as we have risen in Christ. And once again, after who knows what eons of the silence and the dark, the birds will sing out and the waters flow and lights and shadows move across the hills and the faces of our friends laugh upon us with amazed recognition. Guesses, of course, only guesses. If they are not true, something better will be. For we know that we shall be made like him. We shall see him as he is. Friends, God is going to build a new Jerusalem, a new creation. And it's going to be great. But you've got to choose to enter. You see, Isaiah makes it clear that not everyone will make it in. You've got to choose to enter. Those who accept God's offer of life in the new Jerusalem and forgiveness of sins through the suffering servant, well, they'll be let in. 65 verses 9 to 10. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. If you seek God out when he presents himself to you, you'll get all these good things. But for those who don't accept that offer, he goes on to say in the very next verse, they won't make it in. This is 65 verses 11 and 12. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will fall in the slaughter. 
For I called you, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. God holds out a wonderful future for everyone who will accept the offer. But for those who don't accept it, they won't get in. But that brings us to our last point. Because God is offering Israel the entry into this wonderful new creation. But he's also been making it increasingly clear as we've gone through this book that he doesn't just want the Israelites to come and live with him forever in this new world. He wants people from all over the world to accept that offer. But how on earth will people from all over the world know that that offer even exists? They don't have the Hebrew Scriptures. How are they going to find out about it? Because God's people will go out and tell them about it. You see, God makes it really clear that He's going to gather people from every nation into this new creation. Jump over to 66 and look at verse 18. And I, because of what they've planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. But how will He gather them? Well, by sending His people out to tell the nations of in glory and invite them to join them in the new creation. Look there at verse 19, I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. You see, God has said all along in Isaiah that He wants the nations to come into Jerusalem. But now He says He won't just wait for them to trickle in. The way He'll bring them in is by sending His people out. That's the shape of world mission from now on. Fundamentally outward looking. God's people going out to bring the nations in. And you see that mission really start in earnest, don't you, at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The gospel going out from the literal city of Jerusalem into all of the world. So Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1 verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the direction of the mission, out. And of course, in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happens. At the Feast of Pentecost, the disciples preach the gospel in Jerusalem. A bunch of people believe, they receive the Spirit and Peter tells them, Acts 2 verse 39, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so those new Christians, they take that really seriously. So they go out from Jerusalem into all of the world to tell them, planting churches as they go. That's the story of the rest of Acts. They go out from Jerusalem to invite people to join them in the new Jerusalem. And of course, that's still the story that we're all part of right now. The gospel is still going out into the world from that first mission from Jerusalem in the same direction. From those who know Jesus to those who don't. That's the direction of mission from now until the new creation. Us going out so that others can come in. 
You see, that's why we've got to avoid what you might call a flypaper approach to evangelism. Do you know what flypaper is? Let me educate you. Before fly spray was invented, you know, where you could actively go and hunt down flies and get them, you had these things called flypapers, which were little sticky strips that you hung up and you hoped that flies would drift past them and go and get stuck to them, right? Well, I wonder if as Christians we can sometimes have a fly paper approach to evangelism too. We don't do anything, we just sort of sit there and we hope people will drift past and stick to us. Now, at a personal level, fly paper evangelism looks like hoping people will ask you about your faith rather than ever being proactive in sharing it. You hope that someone will just drift past you and ask you about it. Now, the Bible does tell us that we need to be ready to give an answer for anyone who asks us for the hope that we have, and that's really important. But I tell you what, if that's all we ever do, we're never going to get anywhere. It just never works. You will die waiting for enough people to ask you about your faith, for a large number of people to be saved. More importantly, they'll die waiting happening. I've been a Christian for 25 years. I reckon I've had two people ask me for the reason for the hope that I have. Now, it's great to be able to give an answer to that, but we're never going to save the world at that rate, are we? You're going to have to go out. I remember being at a church in Tasmania. I'm from Tasmania. Don't hold it against me. Uh, And I was in a small group of people who were being asked uh, if they'd never actually had the chance to share the gospel with someone and to raise their hands if they had. And, And a few brave souls did. And I remember this person being asked by the leader of the group, uh, this, a, a lady put her arm up, she must have been at least 70, and she was asked why she'd never shared the gospel with someone. And she cried out in dismay, because nobody ever asked me. But here's the thing, no one ever will. No one is ever going to come up to you and say, how can I become a Christian? Let me tell you, as a pastor, I don't have non-Christians calling me up on the phone complaining about why I haven't yet shared the gospel with them. That just doesn't happen. People won't just fly past us and stick to us. We'll have to take it to them, take the initiative, ask the first question to get the ball rolling because that's the direction the gospel is going, outwards from those who know it to those who don't. But do you know what? It's actually surprisingly easy to do. It's actually surprisingly easy to strike up a gospel conversation or even just invite someone to church. Do you know what? A survey was done relatively recently right here in Australia about whether people would accept an invitation to church if a Christian asked them. The results were enlightening. Of people who had some kind of Christian background but no longer went to church, do you know that over two-thirds of people said that if they were invited to church by a Christian, they would come or they'd seriously think about it? Over two-thirds. For those people who'd never come to church before, they'd never darkened the door of the place, over half of them still said they'd come to church or they'd think about it. Isn't that a wonderful encouragement as we come into Easter? It's not that hard. That friend you're really nervous about inviting to church, they're not nearly as nervous about it as you are. And now, of course, that we can invite them to any of our gatherings, you don't need to pick one, you can come to Good Friday or Easter Sunday, you don't need to bother with registration, you just roll up with your friend, why not take that opportunity? Because God can use it, God does. Flypaper won't work, 
But you could ask. That's what it looks like at the church, at the personal level. At the church level, the flypaper approach can look a bit different. The flypaper approach where we expect people to come to us, that looks like us, I reckon, having really good church services and hoping people will just come to them magically. Now, I don't actually think we're at very much risk of that here at Trinity at all. I think we've got a really good inviting culture. We know that we've got to ask people to come and join us on Sundays. But here's the risk. The risk, if you've got this in your mind, is when the building fills up, you think to yourself, oh, great, job done. I couldn't possibly invite anyone else to church because the building's full. But of course, that's just us being tricked by the size of the building. If our building were twice as big, we'd never think that. We'd still think, oh, we're only half full, we'd better get busy. You see, the fact is, we could fill this building a hundred times over every week and still barely make a dent in the number of people in this city who don't yet know Jesus. So when our building fills up, we don't think, job done. No, we think, let's plant. Let's find a new building in another part of the city that we can fill up with people who found Jesus. Because that's the direction the gospel is going. Outwards, to see more and more people come to know Jesus. What have we got to do? According to Isaiah, we've got to go out with the gospel so that others can come in. That's what we should do. But why should we do it? Well, Isaiah gives two reasons. We should do it for God's glory and we do it for the sake of the lost. We do it for God's glory. You see that all through Isaiah 66. God will gather the nations in so they will see my glory, verse 18. We've got to go out because people have not yet heard of my fame or seen my glory, verse 19. In the new creation, all mankind will come down and bow before me, verse 23. Why do we do it? We do it for God's glory, so he'll be glorified. You see, most people in Adelaide don't glorify God for everything he's done for us. And according to God, that's an outrage. He does everything for us, gives us our food, our drink, our joy, our life. But most people in our city don't acknowledge him. And so we want them to, don't we? To give him the glory he deserves. John Piper, the great Baptist preacher, puts this motivation like this. He says, mission exists because worship doesn't. Isn't that a good summary? Why does mission exist? Mission exists because worship doesn't. God isn't getting the glory he should from people. And so that's why we want to go out. Why do we go out with the gospel? Rather than waiting for people to come to us, it's for God's glory. But the second reason we do it is for the sake of those who don't yet know Jesus. Look at that last verse of Isaiah, the very last verse of the book, verse 24. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die, the fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Wow. I would not end this book that way if I were writing it, would you? I mean, it's such a, such a downer. It's such a grim way to end the book. I mean, we read this to ourselves, and if we're honest, we say, well, wow, way to kill the mood, Isaiah. 
You know, you've just been talking about these wonderful things, world mission and a new creation, and you've got to finish with a vision of hell? But it's precisely because he's been talking about world mission and the new creation that he ends with a vision of hell. Because he wants us to know what happens to those who don't get to hear about Jesus and won't get to join the new creation. It's awful. And that should drive us out. The fate of those who don't yet know Jesus. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, once said of his new recruits how he could best prepare them. He says, I would like to send them to hell for five minutes. That would do more than anything else to prepare them for a lifetime of compassionate ministry. And that's true, isn't it? The thought of people going to hell drives us to want to share the gospel with them. That's why Isaiah sends us to hell in the last verse, because he wants us to prepare us for a lifetime of compassionate ministry. Because friends, consider this. Everyone you know and everyone you don't is either going to heaven or hell. The person who served you in the shops this week, the person you walked past on your way into church this morning, your closest friends, one destination or another. That's sobering, isn't it? And yet we can do something about it. C.S. Lewis again puts it so well this way. He says this. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities... It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life as a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Friends, that's our world. We've been through so much change recently as a church, haven't we? You know, there's been the move from gathering pastors to the team pastoring model. And of course, last year there was covid And we've got so much change ahead of us. Church planting in the West next year. If it goes ahead, the site redevelopment, which will be great in the long term, but very disruptive in the short term. Now, why would we be willing to go through all of that change? What would make us want to do all of that hard work? It's this, isn't it? The glory of God and the fate of the lost. God is dishonoured by most in our city. We want to see him glorified. And so we'll be willing to plant more churches and leave our site for a time if it means that more people will glorify him, won't we? Most people in our city, according to Jesus and Isaiah, are going to hell. We want them to go to heaven. And so we'll be willing to inconvenience ourselves so they can be saved, won't we? 
C.T. Studd, the great English cricketer of the 19th century, turned evangelist, said this. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Isn't that what we want Trinity to be? Not just a comfortable place, it's not. A comfortable place where we're happy to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. We want to be a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Let that be said of this church on the last day. Because friends, that last day will be so good if this is right. We've got hard work ahead of us. Going out so people can come in. And we've got to make sure that we still rest now. God calls us to sacrifice, but it's sustainable sacrifice. Someone once said, God wants living sacrifices, not burnt ones. (laughs) But we'll still pour our time and energy into reaching the lost. And perhaps redirect some of our energy in that direction. Because it's so crucial that people hear the gospel. We want to reach them. But one day, that work will be over. And we'll live forever with God in a new creation. And it will be good. So we look forward to that day now, as we work now to go out, so more can come in. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you hold out such a glorious future to us. A future that's as sure as Easter. The hope of a new creation that we can live in where there'll be no more death or pain or suffering. And yet, Father, we know that people can only enter it if they choose to do so. And they can only choose to enter if someone tells them. Father, we pray that we would be the people who tell them. That we'd realise that we've got to go out. And yet, the people are hungry for it. It's probably not as hard as we think. And that the results could be amazing. People coming to know Jesus and live with him forever. Father, we pray as individuals and as a church, we'd be so captured by a vision of your glory and compassion for the lost that you'd move us to that, all the while looking forward to that great rest we have ahead of us in the new Jerusalem. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.